0: So, Mark. Yes. Many of the movies that we've covered on this show have gone on to be turned into stage musicals. Of course. This is the way of the world. Yeah, we had a
1: really solid run for a while, too. I feel like we've tapered off a bit, but there was a period where it was, like, every week.
0: And that was the period where we had, like, the fly opera turning up. Like, things you really did not expect. Yeah. But today, we're gonna be talking about The Reverse, a play that gets turned into a movie. And boy, does it feel like it. Oh, yes, this is very much a play. Yeah. So, before we start talking about that, I was wondering, do you have other favorite examples of movies that are based on plays?
1: Another great example of a movie that is clearly a play that I absolutely love is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh, okay. I have not. It is a bottle movie. It's the one about how gay people are murderers, right? Yeah. It's based off of like I think Leopold and Loeb murders where Oh. They like think that they're smart and commit a murder to try and get away with it but it adds the fun element of homoeroticism between the murderers and then jimmy stewart is the detective who comes to dinner too so basically they kill someone put his corpse in a chest put a dinner spread on top of the chest and invite his parents over for dinner serve off of the chest that his corpse is in and this is like that's awesome this is like the first five minutes That's not really spoilers. I am so
0: into this. You should watch it. I think you'd really like it. Fantastic. Oh, man. See, I was thinking of stuff like, you know, a couple years ago, there was the adaptation of Fences starring Denzel Washington that is just like always a gem to see. And that's a movie that is like a play where it's just people giving big emotional speeches. (laughs) Wow, that doesn't sound like this week's movie at all. Talking in long strings of dialogue sometimes they're quiet and sometimes they're loud. I feel like the biggest thing that you see happen when you adapt a play into a movie is they take advantage of the fact that they can change locations without really complicated set stuff. So like in Fences, when they make it a play, it's all in the backyard. When it's a movie, Denzel Washington can like be on the garbage truck at work or like inherit the wind. When they make a movie of it, they can go to hotel rooms and have people chatting. Outside the courtroom, more often. Like, even in this, they're able to go to the roadhouse.
1: Yeah, they are in a car, which is a very stressful thing to watch.
0: (laughs) Mark, it seems like they are responsible adults who are good at driving.
1: Uh, sure. I'm very excited to talk about this movie, so do you want to
0: get rolling? Sure, yeah. I think we'll have a lot to say, so we might as well get things underway. Yeah. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm Gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast dedicated to discussing the most important questions of our day, like, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable, or even likeable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or a weird twisted game that people play for two hours. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at the feature film debut of Mike Nichols, who we've seen before on The Graduate and The Birdcage. In this case, it is his adaptation of Edward Albee's 1962 play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? And something I noticed that's interesting about the official title of this movie, including the way it's titled in the opening credits, is that this is listed as Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? Almost like, like Marvel's The Avengers or something. He's a big deal. This play was a very big deal, too. Yeah, it was kind of groundbreaking at the time because it was taking some of the existential dread and just weird, surreal conversations that were happening in absurdist theater in the late 1950s and early 1960s, but setting it in a living room. So it's really kind of jarring when it originally came out.
1: Yeah, the language in this movie feels very weird. I can't get over the fact that at one point, George calls Honey monkey nipples and i just uh, think about that a lot and also angel boobs angel boobs is
0: much less weird than monkey nipples (laughs) so one fun fact about like the language in this play is that albie won the tony award for this play and it was selected by the pulitzer drama jury for the Pulitzer Prize in drama, but the advisory committee rejected the play as, like, being too unacceptable and just gave out no drama award that year. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, my... Wow. I'm into... That's so crazy. (laughs) And so then, like, pretty much immediately, because the show was a big hit, there were people who were saying, like, oh, there should be a movie of this. And the Catholic Legion of Motion Pictures, which we have somehow never talked about. Do you know about the Catholic Legion? I do, but I will pretend to not so that you can explain it for the podcast audience. What's that, Will? It was this organization based out of Baltimore that was, like, their own version of the production code. And it was just kind of, like, This random group of people that, through really effective newsletter sending, (laughs) became very influential. And lasted, like, until the 90s, but by then nobody cared what they had to say. And they threatened to give the movie a condemned rating, which was one of their ratings, just based on the script of the play. They were like, we'll wait to see what it looks like, but it's probably going to be condemned. They eventually gave it just morally unobjectionable for adults with reservations, which is pretty good. And actually, weirdly, the Catholic Legion, by saying they were maybe gonna condemn it, was better than the MPAA, which said right off the bat the play's language would block a seal of approval. They're like, there's no way a movie with the word screw in it could be approved by the production agency. Or up yours. And so that's why, actually, Martha shouting screw you was replaced in the movie with goddamn which is apparently more acceptable. I guess
1: maybe it had been watered down because Damn was in other movies at that point.
0: Yeah. So the producers had to agree to put a warning on all the advertising, and theaters had to prohibit any people under the age of 18 from seeing it without an adult. Yeah. So So like you said, this effectively became the first R-rated movie, and it was one of the ones that led Jack Valenti, the head of the MPAA, to develop the rating system.
1: Which is... You know, actually, a very good development. It is. I'm very pro-rating system, because it is much more effective than pass or fail.
0: Yeah, Valenti had, like, just taken the job as head of the MPAA when Virginia Wolf was coming down the pike, and he always framed it as, instead of saying, this movie can be exhibited and this one can't, just saying, we're gonna give consumers information and let them make a choice for themselves.
1: Wow, what an idea. It's so weird watching this movie, because... In your brain, you know, like, oh man, the language of this was such a big deal. And you're trying to buy into the time period. But watching it today, it's still just like... Hearing someone say, screw you, and expecting a gasp
0: from the audience feels very weird. I mean... Yes, on the one hand, like the words themselves don't have the same punch that they would have, but I think the performance behind them and the emotion oh. behind them still carries the intensity. For sure. And you still get the vitriol that's behind that screw you.
1: You get the vitriol. It's just less scandal. Yeah. Whereas I think at the time it would be a little
0: mix of both. But I think that's almost better because we get to focus more on the, the actual interplay of this relationship, right? As opposed to just being taken aback by the words themselves.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think that is good. It's like, watching it today, they could still drop a million F-words, and it would be fine. I think the scandal still wouldn't exist. You would just get the emotion.
0: But that said, like, for all of its incredibly strong language, this was a massive hit. It was the number one film of 1966.
1: That's insane.
0: Yeah. It made $10.3 million and outgrossed everything else that came out that year, and... It's one of only two movies ever to be nominated for every single Oscar it was eligible for.
1: It is wild that this was a number one movie. It is just four people that start the movie really drunk and then get drunker and just
0: scream for two hours. Okay, I counted every drink that we know a person in the movie drank. So I have the official tallies. Who do you think has the most drinks on screen? I'm going to say Martha. So it is. it does actually wind up as a tie between George and Martha. But Martha has like a late surge of catch up because the thing is, there's that whole sequence in the first act where Martha and Honey go upstairs and George is just throwing him back. Mm-hmm. So he runs up an early lead, but slows down later.
1: Yeah. Whereas Martha really... Picks up the pace at the end. Yeah, George and Martha have twelve drinks each on screen. Oh my God, and these are all big drinks, and it's two a.m. and they've been drinking since like nine. I think they say right. they've already been drinking for a while before the movie starts. When I started watching, I was shocked at how drunk they already were. I assumed this movie would start at a much lower, calmer level and build, but it really starts you high and just continues and rises and grows until it just hit a level where it was like, it can't get any more extreme. Like, how are they going to get drunker and
0: crazier? And I looked and I was like, I'm 20 minutes into this movie. <laughs> It is truly outrageous. Nick has nine drinks on screen, and Honey has six. And Honey acts the drunkest. Yes. But also, that is such a fantastic oh God, performance incredible. by Sandy Dennis.
1: I don't even think Honey is her real name. I think That's the name she's yeah. given in the script, and it's the only thing she's ever referred to as.
0: But yeah, it's probably not her real name.
1: Because Nick wasn't given a name in the play either. Right, in the script, right. but not in dialogue. So they actually say it in this... But in the play, I think Nick and Honey are supposed to be, I guess, without names, just even less. Like, it's more focused on George and Martha, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, when you watch the show especially, I think... Honey kind of comes off as somebody that other people react to. And one of the things I love about this movie is the way that Sandy Dennis plays such strong comedy without, like, losing who this person is. Like, I think she does a terrific job. I She's incredible. And, I mean, the Academy agrees with you. <laughs> right. She won an Oscar for this movie. is only the second movie she was in. That's crazy. Her first was Splendor in the Grass, which is the movie that Natalie Wood started with Warren Beatty that got Natalie Wood West Side Story.
1: Oh, I did see that she is big into the method and method acting, which
0: I'm kind of a little about. Well, yes, method acting is dumb. Yeah, but boy, does she give a good performance. My other incredible fact about Sandy Dennis, I just want to confirm this before I say it. Yeah, Sandy Dennis was like a huge cat lover and in like the 70s would rescue cats from Grand Central Terminal and just take them home with her. When she died, there were like 20 cats living in her home.
1: Oh, God, that is too many cats in one home. so
0: many cats.
1: That is just too many cats.
0: And so I imagine, like, Honey snorting with laughter as cats roam all over the place. Oh, my God. That's... Oh, Honey. Oh, Honey. That is just too many cats. So the movie, as we said, was nominated for 13 Oscars, every single one it was eligible for. And it won for Best Actress for Elizabeth Taylor, Supporting Actress for Sandy Dennis, Art Direction for Black and White, Costume Design for Black and White, and Cinematography for Black and White. This was the last year that they had separate Black and White and Color craft awards. Can we just talk about Elizabeth Taylor for a second? I mean, we
1: must. She is unbelievable in this movie.
0: Yeah, she is doing
1: an incredible performance. And she put on 30 pounds to be in this movie and to be considered, like, frumpy and stuff after being
0: considered one of the most beautiful women since she was 13, which is really creepy. Yes, very much so. She's playing 16 years older than herself. She's 34 at the time, playing 50.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons I think that they chose to do it in black and white as they couldn't make her look old in a way where she didn't look clownish in color
0: that is possible i also wonder at the time it was cheaper to shoot in black and white than in color Mm -hmm. and this is mike nichols first movie coming off of being a theater director and absolutely an acclaimed theater director but there was some hesitation at the time about how much money do you want to give this guy who we've never seen make a movie when we did our episode on the graduate we talked about the fact that That movie, which was in production before this one had come out, had a hard time assembling the money because people were unsure about giving Nichols a big budget.
1: Yeah, this movie was, I think, the most expensive black and white movie until that time. Is
0: that true? I don't know that.
1: I listened to the Unspooled episode about this, and I think they said that. All right. Because after watching it, I was like, I immediately needed to hear other people talk about this movie.
0: (laughs) See... I, on the other hand, after watching this, was like, I immediately need to read more about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Oh, and so that is the hole that I ran down.
1: Yeah, I just... Apparently, it's hard to imagine today, even, how much they were, like, stalked, how much scandal they caused. The U.S. considered revoking her citizenship for
0: all the scandal that she caused in the world with Richard Burton. Oh, man. So... Elizabeth Taylor, like Mark said, was this total sex symbol from a very young age, and Richard Burton was her fifth and sixth husband. They met while working on Cleopatra, which is this all-time famous boondoggle. It was one of the most expensive movies of all time when it was made. Taylor was paid a million dollars and 10% of the grosses, which was a thing that had never been heard of before. They also even shot it in Todd A.O., which was a widescreen format that Elizabeth Taylor owned. Because husband number three, Mike Todd, had developed it, and then she inherited it when he died. And so the movie made a bunch of money, but it was so expensive that it took years for it to turn a profit. And Fox tried suing Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, because they were both married when they were making Cleopatra, but started sleeping with each other and made no secret of it. So it was this massive scandal in the American press for years before the movie opened.
1: And their love story was scandalous for the whole time they were together.
0: Which is like 12 years.
1: Yeah, everyone was obsessed with paying attention. And I can't get over the fact that the US government considered revoking her citizenship. I think she was born to two American parents. She was both British and American because she was born in the UK. But I think both of her parents were Americans. They were just like, she's causing the country too much damage by living her lifestyle. She's a scandalous lady. I love Elizabeth Taylor. She basically, in a lot of ways, invented modern celebrity. She was the first to put her name on a product, or at least perfume, which became a big deal. And she also was one of the earliest big celebrities to bring attention to the AIDS crisis. And so she's one of the first gay icons that's actually venerated for work she did for the gay community, which I find really interesting. So the Walter Whitman, which is a health organization in D.C., named one of their clinics after her because of all the work she did in the town, like in D.C. too. That's very cool. Because I think one of her husbands was a senator. Yes, that's right. And so that brought her to D.C.
0: I believe she was married to Jack Warner.
1: Yes. John Warner.
0: No, John Warner.
1: Who might be the same person. Well, there's also Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, but I think John Warner did sometimes go by Jack. Yeah. That's one of the weirdest nicknames because it saves no time. No, but it's a little punchier, I guess. But it still seems very weird to me that the nickname for John is just Jack.
0: Speaking of the intersection of people in this movie and sort of queer identity, in 1970, Richard Burton and Henry Fonda tried to recruit Warren Beatty and John Voight to do an all-male production of this, but Edward Albee refused them the rights. Yeah, they talked about this on Unspooled, too. People kept
1: bringing it up. People would talk to him about it, and he was like, I don't know where you're getting this idea, blah, 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 blah,
0: blah. And I'm like, Edward Albee, have you seen your own play? Yeah, I mean, there is no, like, any, like, particular sexuality. Just, like, anybody could be making out with anybody constantly in this show. George and
1: Nick have the most sexual chemistry of anyone. That's my- that is my- (laughs) I don't even think it's probably that hot of a take but that is my take when they especially
0: as played by Burton.
1: Yeah, when they are rolling around on the grass outside like laying next to each other I was just like What is happening in this movie? These two men clearly want each other. But I guess we know how that would have ended anyway, regardless of which of George and Martha.
0: Yeah. Uh, The other cast members that we should shout out are the characters that are not in the play, which are the roadhouse owner and waitress. And they were not credited officially, but they were played by Frank Flanagan and his wife, Agnes. And Frank was the gaffer for the movie. That is a
1: very good way of saving money. By just forcing yeah. someone to do the job who's
0: already being paid for something else. Yeah, they're already there. Yeah, they're just not... They're, he's just around. Until we need to gaff something, we just have him go out there and kick him out of the bar. Or try and fail. I guess he does eventually succeed, right? He yeah, comes he does. Back. He gets them to leave. Yeah,
1: the first time... It's like
0: kind of a mess. Yeah, the first time does not work. No, not even a little bit. My god, that scene is insane. It's wild. And that, of course, is a sequence that's kind of invented for the movie. There is dancing and stuff that happens in the play, but they never leave the parlor.
1: Right, because it is much harder to do that in a play.
0: I will say I kind of like the way the play is confined to one space, because you feel like, like Nick and Honey, you are sort of increasingly trapped and sucked into George and Martha's weird, bizarre world and their games, and to me at least, once you take that out into the world beyond their house, it becomes harder to feel fully sucked in. And I think that does kind of work for the movie because it helps to take us out of that experience and to really think more critically about what would lead people to behave this way. But there is some captivating madness to the way that you just get trapped and drawn in when the whole thing is confined to that one room. I think the
1: play and movie are both doing what works for the play and the movie. I think that... Keeping them trapped works really well on stage, but I do actually like that they escape, like, leave the house for a bit, because in a way it makes it even more intense when Nick and Honey still end up back at the house. It shows the power of their web, and then seeing them drive that car after having 12 drinks, boy is it, (laughs) boy is it stressful. (laughs) As soon as they started walking towards the car, I was just like, no! Dear god, no! Gotta take them home! Oh god. But Honey wants to dance. And you can't
0: say no to honey.
1: Honey also wants violence. Yay! <laughs> that
0: was, violence can be fun. That was
1: insane when she just started yelling,
0: "Violence! Violence!" All right. I think we should we should start talking about this movie because romance is a weird word to use to talk about who's <laughs> afraid of Virginia Woolf
1: <laughs> in either relationship.
0: Yeah. We're looking at marriages, but we're not really looking at romance. I still stand by George and Nick have the most sexual chemistry in the movie. That may be true. I mean, Martha certainly thought she and Nick had sexual chemistry, but it didn't go so well. No, because he could only get it up for George.
1: Or, I mean, we, we don't know that he could get it up at all at that point in the night. Yeah, probably not. Based on the amount of drinks, I think everyone would struggle.
0: Yeah, definitely. But anyway, whether we have romance or not, we are still tasked with discussing the relationships in this movie, George and Martha and Nick and Honey. So should we get underway? I think we should. I think we will cover most of the movie through this. Yeah. So every week we take the romantic plot lines of a movie and we break it down into five points that help us to summarize what's going on. So for Edward Albee's who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, we need to start at the beginning of the movie when George and Martha come home from a big party at the university where George works. Why don't you want to kiss me? Well, dear, if I kissed you, I'd get all excited. I'd get
1: beside myself, and then I'd have to take you by force right here on the living room rug. And our little guests would walk in, and, well, what would your father say about that? Oh, you pig. Oink, oink. It still feels so weird to use the word romance in relationship to this movie. It's the wrong word. It is just the wrong word. This week, we're a Hollywood relationships
0: podcast. There we go. Yeah. Uh, They come home. One of my favorite things that happens as they're wandering around their house is that Elizabeth Taylor just starts pulling pieces of cold fried chicken out of the fridge and eating them as she walks around the house. That was such
1: good food acting. It was up yeah. It was up there with Emily Blunt eating the roll in Devil Wears Prada, which is one of I have yet to see anything that really surpasses
0: that, honestly. That is a truly fantastic moment.
1: I think it's clearly a moment, too, to establish Martha not as Elizabeth Taylor. Like, this yes. is this is not glamorous Elizabeth Taylor, Cleopatra. This is a woman who gets mad at her husband for not being able to name a movie off of
0: one line and is, what a dump, eating cold chicken out of the fridge very dramatically. Uh, Jack Warner, the Warner Brothers guy... <laughs> Actually pitched Edward Albee on having Betty Davis with James Mason play the lead roles. Warner thought it would be fun to have Betty Davis trying to remember a Betty Davis movie. I think
1: Betty Davis would have been good in this movie. Yeah, she would have. It would be a very different movie because I think a lot of what this Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf is the result
0: of is Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor's real life drama. Right. There's clearly a lot of that feeding into the movie and certainly feeding into the draw for audiences.
1: Exactly. So that was also just a very good business decision.
0: Yeah. So they're like wandering around the house talking. They've clearly had quite a few drinks at this party. George is tired. He wants to go to bed. And Martha is telling him that she's invited guests over.
1: I would flip a shit.
0: If someone told me that they had invited
1: guests over at 2.30 a.m. Yeah, the movie starts well after midnight.
0: I would be so angry. So, as just a warning. And George just, like, tries to go to bed. Like, he climbs into bed and Elizabeth Taylor climbs on top of him and is just rocking back and forth singing Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf" over and over again. It's so funny. It is. And that's a moment where it shows, even as they're insulting each other, this
1: kind of insulting is part of... Their actual relationship. Like, they're both laughing. Right, they have this weird, negging relationship with one another. Right, like, she eventually yells out, you're going bald, and he says, you are too. And then they both just erupt into laughter and cuddle in closer, which is very weird
0: to see. <laughs> it is clearly... They are a, a very mutually deprecating...
1: marriage. Not not a healthy relationship, to say the least.
0: No! (laughs) Not even a little bit. (laughs) And it only gets worse. Right. As all this is going on, they're continuing to throw back drinks, and then these new people, Honey and Nick, arrive. Nick is a new professor at the university. Martha thinks he teaches math, but he teaches biology. And Honey is his young wife. And basically, immediately, Martha starts rubbing Nick's knee and talking about how Daddy knows best, talking about her father, who's the president of the university.
1: She's clearly honed in on the fact that Nick wants to rise quickly in the ranks at the university. And one of Martha's biggest problems with George is that he is stalled, that he did not take over the department even. He is just an associate professor in the history department. In his 40s. In his 40s. And she is constantly bringing this up. She, I think, expected him to rise to the ranks and take over the university from her father, but that's clearly not going to yeah, happen. Yeah, I think that's clear.
0: And she's kind of constantly digging into George over this fact that he has stalled, that he's not really going anywhere. Right. And he never really seems to react to that at the beginning.
1: Like, he's clearly pushing a lot of stuff inwards, to say the least. But
0: when Nick pushes him, like, what are you guys doing? is like, oh, no, we're just exercising. Yeah, <laughs> this is what we do. Yeah, it's just, just life. Just yelling at each other. And there is one point where he basically holds an entire conversation between the two of them, himself, because he knows exactly how they would engage with each other. They've had these conversations over and over and over again. And so that means that this needling, this fairly harsh and hurtful needling, has happened over and over and over again.
1: They must have been married for at least 20 years at this point. Maybe not that much. I
0: think so. Almost 20. Well, no, because we know George is in his mid-40s, and I get the sense that they married fairly young, when George was new to the university. And so I do think they've been together for quite a while. And... So they have had clearly the same
1: fights for probably at least half of their relationship.
0: And there's always the weird threat and the weird power dynamic that comes from the fact that George works for Martha's father, whom she has a very close relationship with.
1: Yes, she very clearly idolizes her father much more so than she respects George. Oh, we should also mention before Nick and Honey show up, George says, don't mention our son. And it's very weird. Yes. But he just throws that out there and she's like, oh, I won't. I never do. Blah, blah, blah.
0: And I would have to check the script of the play, which I haven't read in a couple of years. But I don't believe that line is in the show. I think the son isn't mentioned until Honey comes downstairs talking about him.
1: Yeah, that's, that feels like something they might add in to make the movie a bit more accessible, just
0: to kind of plant it in yeah. your mind earlier. So around this time, Honey announces that she has to go to the bathroom, and George tells Martha to help Honey find her way to the euphemism, and that leaves George and Nick alone in the parlor to dig into each other a little bit more.
1: Have you uh, kept your body? It's still pretty good. I work
0: out. Do you?
1: Yeah. Yes. He has a very firm body. Thank you. Oh, I think that's very nice. Well, you never know. You know, once you have it. You never know when it's going to come in handy.
0: (laughs) Very masculine energy moment. A lot of that homoeroticism you were talking about, but also, you know, George, for example, tells Nick he knows when he's being threatened, kind of implying that Nick is targeting Banging Martha. And George tries to turn it by commenting on Honey's slim hips. Like, there's this weird sort of sexual contest going on between the two of them.
1: Yeah. So, Will sent me an SNL sketch with hamsters in it. Oh my goodness, yes! So, I knew that there was an element of Martha and Nick... But I didn't realize how early in the movie it would come
0: up. It's from the drop. Yeah. I'm... Yeah, if you haven't seen this, there's this terrific SNL sketch from like five years ago, maybe, which is, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf?" but done with hamsters. And the thing that makes it great is, A, they're wearing hamster suits, and B, they are still chugging, but it's all of them are holding those bottles and like nibbling water out of the tube at the bottom. Yeah, it's so, it's so weird. I loved it so much. Uh... I will definitely
1: be posting that one on social media for us. Yeah, I figured. But yeah, so Honey and Martha are gone for a while. And George and Nick are just kind of going back and forth with each other. Pissing contest,
0: etc. Very competitive. Then Martha and Honey come back down, and Martha immediately launches into, like, talking about Nick's athletic prowess and how strong he must be. She gets Honey to confirm that Nick has a firm body. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy, Martha. And it maybe... Feels uncomfortable for some people, but I feel comfortable saying I too have a firm body. (laughs) Uh, I love Martha. I hate her so much that it like yeah she's a
1: horrible person. Loops back around to love.
0: It's just so much fun to watch, and that's the thing about this play is you're watching horrible people. And Albie wrote about this. He's like, I wanted to write a play that people laughed at through the whole thing, and then they went home and found they couldn't sleep.
1: Yeah, all four of them are just so bad. Honey is clearly the one that's, like, least developed, so thus least objectionable, but even she is still a bad person. Yeah. I was going in expecting, usually movies like this tend to be a bit more where the man is worse than the woman. So in this one, when Martha started out just as bad, or, you know, the woman will be more like henpecking and, you know, not giving it as cruelly as the man seeing a woman come in and just being like awful right away
0: was very weird do you understand what i mean absolutely yeah and so this is where she's like really tearing into george and just twisting the knife as she talks about how his career hasn't advanced and oh you know nick maybe you could be in charge of george's department one day i know it's not what you teach, but George certainly isn't going to be taking it over, and just nailing him over and over again, and she asks George to light her cigarette, and he says he's not going to, because he does enough work taking out all her gin bottles after midnight, like covering up her alcoholism. There does seem to be this way that they mask each other in certain ways, but it still then becomes just more ammunition in this eternal war between the two of them. My god, the relationship, the war is just, ugh. (laughs) And the truly incredible thing is, George and Martha have this, one of the many games they play is that they have this imaginary son who's never around, but they talk about what's going on in his life. They are presumably infertile, and this gives them a way to sort of play at having the family that they would be expected to have, given the cultural norms of the time. But what's truly incredible and revealing about this is that this game that would presumably make things feel more normal just becomes more ammunition for their fights, where they're throwing things at one another about how they have failed to be a good parent.
1: Yeah, they use this
0: fake sun to just tear each other down. And that, I think, is what's most remarkable about the imaginary sun. Right. They're playing a game, fine. It's a little bit weird that they play this game, but that's no big deal. What's weird is that it becomes just another source of, like, hateful exchanges.
1: And I will say, I fully expected the sun to actually be dead or something. Like, I did not see the fact that the sun was imaginary coming as much because i'm just so used to movies where i was like oh she probably miscarried 16 years ago and then is just being crazy like a woman is but it was not that no she's just drunk yeah
0: she's not crazy <laughs> yeah, no one in this play is crazy in any way they are all just hammered out of their mind so around this point george gets fed up with the way that martha's tearing into him. So he leaves the room and he comes back with a shotgun that he then points at people in the room. And this is actually a moment where I think the cinematography of this movie is interesting to talk about because it's Nichols' first movie and he said in interviews about this being a movie where he was just figuring out how filmmaking worked. And you see that, I think, especially early on in the movie where there aren't a ton of cuts. Instead, the camera is just kind of panning around the room following actors and you imagine this is a theater director trying to transition from a stage where you can see everything that's going on to film, where you only get the stuff that's in the frame and there's a lot that's outside. So those pans kind of feel like that's some of what you're getting. But when George comes back with the gun, you start to see some of these flashes of the kinds of things he did in The Graduate. These like weird zooms and sort of unusual cuts to different people when they see George leveling a gun at his wife. That was insane. Yeah, and then he pulls the trigger. Yeah, the
1: way that scene is composed too is just... Wild. That's the moment where I was like, this is the guy who made The Graduate. Yeah. And he pulls the trigger and an umbrella comes out and everyone is tickled pink. Yeah. And then George and Martha make out. Yeah. (laughs) My God. If you haven't seen this movie, we like cannot convey. We can tell you what happened, but we can't tell you about the movie. Yeah. You need to watch it. It is hard to convey the truly uncomfortable experience that is watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf.
0: Yeah. And, like, that moment when he pulls the trigger and then the umbrella comes out and then he starts making out with Martha. You're just like, this is now total chaos. Yes. And nothing matters. I think this is the moment where I was, like, checked the time and it was 20 minutes in. Yeah it's so the movie's two hours and 15 minutes i know i saw that and i was like where am i and at that point martha starts tearing back into george again going through his relationship history so george grabs honey's hands and makes her dance with him while he sings who's afraid of virginia wolf virginia wolf virginia wolf I was very confused
1: about who Virginia Woolf was as a kid because of this movie. You watched this one a lot when you were
0: like in elementary oh, school, yeah. right? You know, just... Come home <laughs> from school, pop it on pour a drink, your
1: Pop-Tarts. <laughs> pour a drink in the back bar. Sit the pack of Oreos. Yeah. But just the existence of the name of this combined with the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf really did confuse me. As a kid. At
0: some point in the movie, someone should have said, tra-la-la-la-la. But they don't, unfortunately. No, instead, the dancing around in circles with George makes Honey have to go to the bathroom so she can vomit. Yeah. She's a big vommer. Yeah, and Nick is not surprised at all. No, that's what she does. She throws up, and once she starts throwing up, she can't really stop throwing up. I think she's like two brandies in at this point. Something like that. That means, of course, that she still has four more to go. Yes. In addition to anything she had at the first party. I think this is bringing us actually to point three, then? Yeah, at this point, Martha goes to take care of Honey as Honey vomits in the bathroom, and George and Nick grab some bottles and head out into the yard. To the wood swing they have set up, which is, I think,
1: part of the weird game with their fake son.
0: Right, put up the swing for the boy, and of course there is no child, so no one will ever use it.
1: Until George does. And this one time... This boy went with
0: us and we ordered our drinks.
1: And When it came his turn, he said, I'll have Bergen. Give me some Bergen,
0: please. And they're talking through different stories out there. George is telling stories about his past that may or may not be about him. He also tells Nick that the key to advancement is to plow the relevant wives. He describes that as um, the wide inviting avenue to
1: like success on the campus. And Nick responds with, Well, your wife must have the widest and most inviting avenue on the whole damn campus.
0: I mean, have you seen Martha?
1: Yeah, I will say. This is around the window where she puts on those pants, right? Yeah. Oh my God. I know they were trying to like make her look like frumpier, but boy, I don't think they were.
0: No. I think the point is that she's dressed in her seduction clothes. Well, yeah. So she puts on her seduction.
1: I mean, in terms of just her general vibe, like by making her gain weight and putting old age makeup on her. But then she shows up in this outfit with like her boobs pushed up to her ears and like skin tight pants. And you're just like, now I'm imagining someone with their boobs pushed (laughs) up to their ears going out in public. That is not the intention of that. (laughs) Anyway, so she comes out, and this is the moment where you're just like, all right, this is Elizabeth Taylor.
0: And she is here to get bonin'. Yes. And it's also weird because this conversation about plowing the relevant wives, it does seem more than ever that George is in on this game of seeing if Nick is going to have sex with Martha.
1: Yes, and doesn't seem that upset
0: about it. Which is a bit of a twist, because earlier it seemed like he's annoyed by the way Martha is flirting. But at this point, he's kind of just like, accepted that it's going to happen. And now he's kind of daring Nick to go through with
1: it. Yeah, he's like, I know that that's what you want you know that
0: that's what you want why don't you actually go for it and so martha returns they kill multiple bottles while they're sitting out on the lawn yes and martha returns and is like we got to take them home so these four very drunk people pile into a car oh my god and they get driving and mark is like yes this is how driving works yes so this is point number four they're driving them home but honey wants to go dancing
1: i'm gonna finish you before i'm through with you
0: You want that quarterback both gonna finish me
1: before i'm through with you you wish you died in that automobile you bastard you'll wish you never mentioned our son i said i warn you i'm impressed i want you not to go too far i'm just beginning
0: yeah they pass a roadhouse and honey's just like
1: dancing
0: and And of course it's worth noting that it was dancing that got honey vomiting in the first place
1: (laughs) yes it is and so clearly, she will probably vomit again. Who knows? I don't actually remember if she does. I stopped paying attention. And she to that. is like a Pringle in that once she pops,
0: she can't stop.
1: Yes. So they cut from the car to Honey just prancing around with a scarf over her head, dancing. Doing like interpretive dance. Yeah. And just screaming about how she's so light on her feet and so good at dancing, having the time of her life.
0: And while they're at the roadhouse, George tells the story of his second novel, which is clearly adapted from what Nick told George about his own relationship history, about how Nick married Honey when it appeared that Honey was pregnant.
1: As well as because she's rich. Yes. So Honey is rich and has a hysterical pregnancy. So Nick marries her when I think they think she's probably like six months in. But after they get married, it just goes away. And Honey vacillates throughout the movie about whether she really wants a kid or not. Right. But yeah, George tells about this. Nick gets very angry. So Nick starts very
0: sexily dancing with Martha. Yeah, it is worth noting that Honey reacts pretty strongly to this story being told, and she does kind of imply that it wasn't a hysterical pregnancy, but that she got scared and had an abortion.
1: Because she doesn't really want kids until she says at the end that she does. Right. But part of that is all the weird social pressure at the time that you're not a real woman until you have kids.
0: Right, exactly. And of course, I think there's an extent to which Nick's desire for advancement pushes him to want to have this like perfect seeming family as part of his public persona. Right. It's all
1: about advancing his career for Nick, like everything.
0: Yeah. So they are dancing at the club and this is when George invites honey to dance by asking, uh, you want to dance angel boobs? Yeah. Which is also what I said to Mark when I was asking if he was ready to record. Yep.
1: Honestly, wouldn't be surprised if you had actually texted me that
0: Well, I always want to know if you're ready to go.
1: But then after this, Martha and George get into their, probably their biggest brawl. Because this is the one where it gets violent. And boys, Honey excited about that.
0: Violence, violence, violence. They start, though, physically assaulting each other, throwing each other into furniture. At one point, George starts throttling Martha. Yeah, it's very tough to watch. And it's also impossible to tell how serious they are. And that's one of the things that's like most unsettling about this movie is because they're clearly playing games, you can never tell quite how serious anything is. And I'm convinced they do this every weekend. Yeah.
1: They're bringing a new couple home every weekend to recreate this exact game. It is truly wild. So after this, after the fight breaks up, they all sit down for another drink. And this is where we get more games such as Hump the Hostess. Yes. Yes. This is point five, right? Yeah, I think we're getting on to point five. Who's afraid of a, world, a, world, a world. I am George.
0: Those afraid of a world. I am So at this point, they return, but you got to remember, George and Martha continue to fight when they leave the roadhouse, and Martha piles Nick and Honey in the car and drives off without George. So George has to walk home from the roadhouse. One of my favorite lines is when she yells out, I'm
1: loud, vulgar, and I wear the pants in this relationship because someone has to, but I am not a monster.
0: And that's what you had like painted in like a nice Etsy font, and you put it on your Instagram.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have an applique coming in the mail to put on my wall. Oh, good. I can't wait to see it. My sister has above her bed in the house that they bought already applied was Always Kiss Me Goodnight in the Live Laugh Love font over their bed. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) They're repainting the wall. And I said, you're just going to
0: put a frame around Always Kiss Me Goodnight, right? Imagine touring a house and just seeing that there. (laughs) And knowing that it's going to be there when you buy it. And here's the thing. You can paint over it but it's still there. (laughs) It's never going away. Oh, I also want to point out,
1: I think this is where I fully acknowledged, I took a step back and realized how disgusting everyone looks. Like, they are coating these people in sweat And yeah, like
0: really showing what people that are this drunk would look like. This drunk and like running around and dancing and yeah, they look gross, which I think is significant. This is not a fun thing as much as they're all pretending they're having fun on some level. This is exhausting and horrible. Yeah, they are just drenched. So then George walks home and when he gets there, Honey is on the porch and Nick and Martha are inside, presumably having sex.
1: Yes, you see it up in the window. Honey is just fully passed out in the car. Like, right, he has to haul her out of yeah, there. Yeah, barely responsive. And then they go off. George and Honey then like go off into the woods and just kind of disappear. And then I think this is where Nick and Martha go to the kitchen together.
0: Yes, and Martha's annoyed with Nick because he wasn't able to get an erection.
1: Yes, and she's just yelling at him. And this is when she yells at him for thinking he's better than everyone else, which is obviously not true. She yells out another one of my favorite Martha lines was, I am the Earth Mother and you are all flops.
0: Which is it's a tough line to sell, but boy does Elizabeth Taylor sell it. That's the thing is Martha on some level, it doesn't really seem to think anyone is real except for herself and maybe her father. Like everyone else is just a person orbiting Yeah. What is happening directly with her. They are a bit player in the play that is Martha. Which is how you can imagine that. It's particularly frustrating for her when her life isn't going the way that she imagines it's supposed to be. Exactly. Because she's so self-centered that she can't imagine how that could be. Right.
1: So then... We get everyone in the room together.
0: George comes back. He has planned to kill off their son.
1: Yes. He gets a telegram from Western Union because some
0: things can't be said over the phone. Right. This, of course, is an imaginary telegram from an imaginary Western Union man because, again, their son is imaginary. Right. But Honey also is
1: in on it or sees it and says that when George says he ate the telegram, Honey backs him
0: up on it. Yeah. I think Honey has just lost her tether, at yeah. least for tonight.
1: Yes. Also, will any of them remember this in the morning? Probably not. Well, I guess <laughs> really it, good is, question. it is morning when the movie ends. The sun is up. Yeah. But I feel like after they all sleep, at least Honey will have no idea what happened the night before.
0: I think once she started vomiting, she was done. Yeah.
1: But yeah, so George kills their son.
0: Which really tears Martha up, because this was a fiction that she had held on to as one piece of that perfect life she imagined. Right. And Nick and Honey are figure
1: out what's going on and are disgusted and finally leave. And George and Martha are left together, holding hands, basically, maybe... The sun is coming up, and it's like, is there supposed to be hope that these two can now move forward? We'll see.
0: We'll see. I don't really know about that. No, this exact game will happen in seven days. So, would you say that the... Again, romance is the wrong word, (laughs) but relationships of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf are believable? I don't know. It's like, obviously everything is...
1: Brought to an absurd level. Yeah, it's all heightened. But the core of these relationships are believable. Like, they're based off of real ideas of
0: relationships. But twisted to an incredible level.
1: Right, and heightened to show the ridiculousness of how these relationships are centered.
0: So every week we rate the believability of a movie on a 10 point scale where zero means we believe none of it, 10 means we believe all of it. Like, where do you put Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf"?
1: I don't know. I've been thinking about this, and I really, I'm struggling with this one. I don't know what to do with it. It just doesn't feel like it fits on our scale. Like, this is the first movie that just doesn't really fit in the show. Like, there's no actual romance. But it is relationships, and it's, that's kind of what we I do. I know. It's just, I'm really struggling with believability.
0: I think I'm going to put it at like a three or a four. Yeah, I think that's what I was thinking. Because I think that there are these seeds of toxic relationships. But we can't pretend that this is anything approaching reality. Exactly. Like, it's not- So I think maybe it's a three. Yeah, it's not meant to be reality. No, that's not the point.
1: So, oh boy. Well, I think we've answered the next question, but
0: do you think George, Martha, Nick, or Honey are dateable? No, none of them is, but according to the rules of our show, we all have to pick a person in the movie to date. So who would you pick to date? I guess Roadhouse Man. (laughs) Yeah, he's got a business. He seems responsible-ish. He stays open late. He does serve them another round of drinks. Yes, he's not that responsible, but, you know. Our options are limited here. (laughs) Yeah. You could date the imaginary son. (laughs) They do make him out to be very nice. Yeah. Do you think that George and Martha and Nick and Honey stay together? I think so. I think- Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, this is an age where that is the only option.
1: Maybe Nick and Honey. Like, Honey might leave Nick someday.
0: That's conceivable, but I just don't know that I think Honey has that in her.
1: No, but we'll see. Last question,
0: as I mentioned at the top of the episode, should the film Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf be adapted into a stage musical? No. Maybe an opera, but not a musical. So, I have a couple of different pieces of information here. Number one is that this movie was released at a time when home video did not exist. So, the only way movies were seen after their initial run was if they were re-released in theaters or on television. The language in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf meant that it would never be shown on television. So the studio, offering people another way to engage with it, released a two-disc soundtrack record, including all of the dialogue from the movie. And they, like, cut out a lot of the long pauses and stuff like that, but you could just put on your turntable and listen to the dialogue of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, if there's any movie where that would work... This one has got to be up there. Yeah, and this actually had also been done with the original Broadway cast as well. Um, Additionally, in our musical tradition, in the 1990s, a Canadian dance troupe called One Yellow Rabbit did an hour-long ballet based on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Hmm. That's interesting that's kind of like getting into your opera territory yeah it has to be heightened whatever you do well take this for an idea in 2018 the oh no. off off broadway theater company elevator repair service put out a play called everyone's fine with virginia Woolf," <laughs> which was a 21st century reimagining of the show where we have the same characters some of the Dialogue kind of, like, rhymes with the original Albi, but isn't quite the same. And they try to look at these sorts of relationships through the context of, like, how does the internet add wrinkles to this, and technology, and all of that. Hmm. Also, there's a late arrival to the party, and it's Carnilla, a vampire who feeds on human neuroses. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, <laughs>
1: Started so interesting and so weird. Just like Carnilla. our show. I think that about does it for this movie.
0: Okay. So uh, next week, we will be headed back into some more weirdness. We're going to look at the McConaughey rom-com era. Something I kind of can't believe happened.
1: Yeah, his career trajectory is weird. And the most recent thing on it is Serenity. So just to Uh, remind everyone of that movie. What a movie. I guess it was almost... It was a year ago that came out. Yeah, it was about
0: a year ago we saw Serenity. Oh my. Anne Hathaway. In the wrong movie. Remember when he had had sex with
1: Anne Hathaway on that boat? Yeah. Remember how Anne Hathaway should be the star of a film noir?
0: Yeah, she would be great. She looked great in those hats. She did. And that's... (laughs) A big part of the role, I think. Anyway, we're going to be watching Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, so stay tuned. (laughs)
1: Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie
0: suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts, in particular, help other people to find the show. Last question, what is the best piece
1: of dating advice you got from this movie?
0: I would say drink responsibly so that if someone wants to consent to a romantic encounter with you you are capable of engaging all right i'd say have a rich dad
1: and someone will love you because it works for both martha and honey even though neither of them are actually loved
0: but it's not nothing
1: yes anyway (laughs) until next time i'm gay
0: and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance Bye. Bye. bye